All right, today we're sitting down with Cody Worthington. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Kurt. Now, what is your full, like on your birth certificate, what is your name? Jason Cody Worthington. Okay, so give us the, what's the story behind the name? So my parents named me that, and I was named after Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh, really? And <laughs> That's a cool Because my, my dad loves Westerns, and uh, basically they, they wanted to give me a name that was common because they were afraid maybe Cody wouldn't be... You know, they I might be made fun of, and so they gave me the name Jason just in case that I didn't like Cody or whatever. But but they they called me Cody from the time I was born. Oh, wow! So Jason's not like your dad's name. No, no. Uh, it was just a name that just it's a, name. a backup name. But they, and that, but they called you Cody from birth from the beginning. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And so. Um, you're J. Cody Worthington. J. Cody Worthington. <laughs> it's good, that uh, general authority name. Not that I'm uh, <laughs> projecting anything of your future, but um, that's cool. That's yeah. great. And, well, and there's a benefit. For okay. those that have that go by their middle name, when somebody calls you and they call you Jason, you know automatically they don't know who you are. Yeah. Right? So you Filter got out the, the, the call sales calls. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's nice. So where were you born? I was born in Germany, Stuttgart, oh, wow. Germany. Military family or what? Mm-hmm. Yep, my dad was in the military, stationed over there in 1974. And we were there for about three years. My older brother was born in the U.S., and then he came over at one, and then I came along a year later. And then they left in 1977, so I was only three. So wow. I, don't, I don't remember any of it. And didn't bring any German with you? or no. You don't speak German? No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, it'd be nice. But so, did you did you come to Utah at that point, or where did your family move uh, Oklahoma. to? Oklahoma. Okay. My dad was still in the military. Went to a Lawton, a Lawton uh, military base, and uh, and then moved from there to to Idaho. Nice. What which part is, of Idaho? Which is where my where my dad and my mom, their families, all from Idaho. So after he got out of the military, mm-hmm. uh, he went back to Idaho as a truck driver. Nice. And this is near Boise, a little town called Weezer initially, but mostly I grew up in Parma, which is not too far from Weezer or Boise. Nice. And what was the what was your family makeup like? So interesting. So I had my older brother and me, and my parents settled in Weezer, and then there was a family next door, and they had three children that were a little bit younger than my brother and I, but two boys and a girl. And then ultimately, over time, the parents swapped. So my dad married the mom in this family, <laughs> and my mom married the dad in the other family. Really? So these became my stepbrother and sisters twice. Okay, I gotta like sit and like process this a minute. So yeah. They, so it's they, they swapped. twice over step siblings. Correct. They swapped. Okay. So and I'm sure that's a long dramatic story yeah, there, yes, but uh, did. Uh, I mean, and then there were more children born after that. <laughs> okay, from both couples. With with my mom and my stepdad, my okay. my stepmom and my dad never had any more children after that. So when that swap happened, uh, did, did one move away or they so stayed they, in the same? No, house? they stayed this. They stayed relatively close, okay. not in, not in the same homes. That's when my family moved from Weezer to Parma. And uh, and then my dad and stepmom didn't get married until quite a bit later, but eventually they got married. My mom and stepdad got married right away, hmm. um, you know. And so, yeah, 
So on uh, like holidays and things, you're it's just like two families that are determining where the kids are going, type of thing. It's sort of. Yeah. I mean, so so I have all these stepbrothers and half you know half half siblings, stepsister, but ultimately we consider all of ourselves as just brother and sister. Yeah. We don't even think about the step and the half. That's yeah. kind of how it's it's been. Hmm. So there's seven of us, and the families did not get along. I mean, my my parents and step parents, they just fought and fought and fought, and, mm. and it was just, it was actually really negative. I mean, to the point where my dad died, I think because of how bitter he was. Oh wow, that's tough. So it was, yeah, it was very very difficult to go through that as a child. And are you like a young teenager when this is sort of happening? Or? So I was eight or nine. So mm-hmm. yeah, a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, and I would imagine eight nine year old. That's just very confusing and. Uh, hurtful at times yeah, when you see yeah, that conflict it, it and was, contention. It was difficult. And, you know, we can shift into the religious part of it, but by nature I'm a religious person, and I always thought about that commandment, you know, to honor your father and your oh, mother. A little bit more complicated. And it was experience. complicated yeah. because they wanted me literally to hate the other parent, mm. you know, and, and they were trying to have me pick sides and come live with me, come live with me, you know. And... I'm like, okay, I love you both, right? And yeah. and I want to keep the commandment to the best I can to honor my parents, and I can't do it if you want me to hate the other person, you know? Yeah. And you got to manufacture hate, right? I mean, you know. Yeah. So. So how did you? How do you remember reconciling that as a young kid? Did you just sort of let that wash over you, or? No, it it was a bad thing in a way because ultimately what I decided to do, and this is wrong, but as an eight year old, this is. I just told them what they wanted to hear, hmm. and I didn't feel comfortable expressing how I really felt inside. Just go right? along to get along type thing. Go along to get along, yeah. which is not always the best approach, and especially as you get older, you need to be honest about what you want and what, yeah. how you feel, right? But you can sort of put it off, you know, but just survive. You're sort of that survival Correct. mentality of like, yeah. <laughs> I just want to... You know, be a be a kid, right? Exactly, so. exactly. So you mentioned religion growing up. Were both parents pretty religious, uh, Latter Day Saint uh, homes, or so complicated? So my mom was baptized, but not super active, and my dad was baptized in the military as an adult. Although he came from an LDS family that was very inactive, so my grandfather was baptized when he was eight, and I've got like his scouting documents and all these, you know primary hmm. stuff. But when my grandpa got to the issue of tithing, he says, I'm out of here. He he did not want to pay tithing as a 19-year-old, you know, b- brand new, hmm. out of the military. So it broke his, his mom's heart because his mom was basically a pioneer of, of pioneer stock. His dad was not a member, my great-grandfather. So my grandfather grew up in a part-member family, and it was easy for him to leave, and he just used tithing as an excuse. So my dad grew up not around the church at all. And when he married my mom, my mom wanted him to pick a religion. And she was a member, although inactive. And so she got him to take the discussions in Germany. And the missionaries in Germany baptized him. Hmm. And were these American missionaries, you know? Or, uh, yeah. American missionaries. And they probably were used to teaching in German, and here they are teaching yeah, in English. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and apparently they met... Um, uh, Boyd K. Packer over there, and that oh, was kind of influential. Hmm. You know, he came over to speak to the troops. And so so then my dad was baptized, but growing up, they didn't really go to church until until maybe I was about five or six, four or five, six, somewhere in there, they started going. So my earliest memories are of going to primary. 
Uh, but the, you know, we didn't have family home evening. We didn't go to the temp. They didn't go to the temple. They didn't mm-hmm. do prayer, anything like that. It was just Sunday. We go to church, and primary, and that's it. Yeah, that was it. So I literally learned the gospel from my primary teachers. Oh wow! Which is, I just love them to this day, and I thank them for challenging me. You know, one of them told me read the Book of Mormon when I was like eight, and so I took the challenge. I had one of those blue copies. And I used a pink highlighter to highlight as I read, and I highlighted the whole entire book. Wow. But that's when I really started to understand that religion was really important to me. I mean, like, hmm. deeply, deeply important to me. Yeah, and even your parents' efforts of getting you there every Sunday, you know, that's similar to my father's story. He came mm-hmm. sort of from an inactive home, but my grandma just sort of got him to church, you know? And I think his parents, you can feel overwhelmed at times of... I'm not doing enough. Like, is my kid just going to drift away from religion someday or, right. you know, end up in prison or whatever? But just these little things. And over time, it, it, it'll it lead to, uh, you know, it'll, I think the gravitational force of faith yeah. will pull them in closer and closer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I relate a lot to Joseph Smith in the sense that I'm a serious person by nature. You know, my wife is always saying, you need to lighten up. You need to joke and laugh. But, <laughs> but I'm always like, I, I feel like, I'm thinking about eternity a lot, right? Like, and I'm and I'm not so concerned about being happy now, as opposed to being happy in eternity, right? Like, now is very short compared to eternity, mm. and so from a young age, I've thought like like Joseph Smith. He was curious. Okay, if none of these churches are true, or if one of them is true, I need to find it. That's important to me, right? Like, yeah. like I need to know because my salvation's on the line. And I feel very similar to Joseph Smith in those in that sense that you know figuring out my salvation is really important to me. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Anything else about those developmental years, your childhood that would be worth mentioning? Um, as far as religion goes, seminary was really where I really started to learn the gospel. Like I hmm. just thank my seminary teachers, and I can get you know kind of emotional about it. And I still, I still love them. And when I go back home, some of them are still alive, and I always thank them. Oh wow! You know, because without them, I don't know where I would be in terms of the gospel. Like, wow! They put me on a path. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for the testimony that I gained from seminary. And was this uh, this in Idaho? Was release release time seminary during school or? How no, it work? was before. We had seven a.m. I think is what it was. Oh okay. And um, and. For me, I mean, that was the best part of my day. I never missed a single day, hmm. and I loved it. Yeah, and you, that's would you say that when your testimony really start to flourish and and dig deeper roots? Well, it's where I began to understand what the scriptures were. I mean, I read the Bi- the, the Book of Mormon. I hadn't read the Bible. I started to read the Doctrine and Covenants, but I really began to understand. Okay, how does all this fit together? Because I didn't know how the Bible fit. I didn't know the Old Testament, New Testament. I just didn't know. Yeah. And I mean, I knew some of the stories that you hear, Noah's Ark and the Garden of Eden and those kind of things. But it really, when I when I went through seminary, I began to understand, okay, this is the foundation of our church, right? This is where everything comes from. The doctrine and, and the information is all here. And that was powerful for hmm. me. Uh, what about what did you want to be uh, when you grew up as a child? You remember? So yeah, so I wanted to be a, a cartographer, perhaps. <laughs> so what's a cartographer? I don't they, know. They make maps. Oh, okay. A map yeah, maker. Okay. I just, nice. My dad was a truck driver, and so I would follow him 
on maps. You know, I'd be like, okay, he's in this city today and he's going to this city. Mm-hmm. And I just loved maps. I still to this day adore maps. And so I wanted to be a map maker. And I, you know, over time I thought, okay, ge- uh, geologist, you know, working in mines. And I actually got a scholarship to go to the Colorado School of Mines. Hmm. Um, I thought about going into the military because my dad was in the military. My my grandpa was in the Navy. I talked to the Navy, and, and I was pretty close to going. Uh, I wanted to work on submarines. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they cool. told me that I couldn't go on a mission. Mm-hmm. And I says, okay, that's a deal breaker right there. I'm not not signing up. If you can't guarantee me two years off to take, serve a mission, then, you know. And, of course, remember, you had to be 19 to serve a mission. And I would go into the Navy at 18. Mm. And so I says, nope, that's not for me. Yeah. Uh, and so I I uh, was going to BSU, uh, not, and I wanted to study something in science, uh, Boise State University, I should yeah. say. Yeah. I wanted to do something in science because I've always, always, even to this day, love physics, chemistry, all anything to do with science. I just have always felt like there's a lot of truth there. And it meshes, of course, with the gospel, right? And and there's some religious aspects too. But um, I realized that I was having a hard time going to school, working part time at McDonald's and Pizza Hut, which is what you know would accommodate my schedule, and saving for my mission. Now, yeah. and I had to pay for my mission. You know, I didn't have a, 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 any other way to fund it. And so I said, well, I'm I'm, I'm not going to get there working part-time and going to school. So I decided I'd take a, a year off or however long it took and then work full-time, go on my mission, and then come back to school. So mm-hmm. I, I prayed, you know, Heavenly Father, help me get a good job. And, and I was making like $4.35 an <laughs> yeah, hour, right? That right. was minimum wage. And there was a job that came open at a company called Micron. and or No, I'm sorry, Zilog. Micron was in Boise. This is Zilog. They make computer chips. And they were paying like seven bucks an hour, which wow. was unheard of, you know, for an unskilled laborer. And so I applied, and there were something like two hundred positions that, or two hundred people that applied yeah. for just a handful of jobs. Now, now this was right after high school period. This You're would have been 18? Eight, 18 and a half, I'd okay. say, okay. or actually nineteen when I started working there. And so, uh, just a few positions, and I was blessed to get one, and I was so glad because it was a lot more than what I was making. And so ultimately, after 11 months, the day that I had enough money to go on my mission, I quit, you know, so that I could turn in my paper. So I was actually 20 when I went instead of 19. Mm. I was one year older. But that year was good because I worked an overnight shift. And I would sit in my car during my lunch break, and I would read Jesus to Christ. Oh, wow. And I would read the articles of, uh, or the doctor- Art- doctrines of salvation. Oh, yeah. And I read the... Joseph Smith, the the um, the Blue Book. I forgot the name of it. The Teachings of the Prophet Joseph. Oh yeah, Smith. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just read these books, and because for me, well, there's several other things I did. I knew I was going to go on a mission, and I thought to myself, if I'm going to be a representative of Jesus Christ, I need to know who He is. I need to know what He taught, what He stood for. I can't represent Him or teach Him if I don't know anything about Him. And so that was one aspect of my preparation was just just ingesting as much about him as I could. Um, Sorry. But the other part was, um, I don't know why I'm so emotional. It's your life. It means a lot. Um, 
I, I went with the missionaries on splits as often as I could. Hmm. And I mean like almost weekly because I thought, hey, if I want to be a missionary, and I, don't, I didn't have any missionaries in my family. My, my stepdad was a missionary, but he was in the 60s and he never really talked about it. Hmm. So I didn't have any brothers or sisters, siblings. Um, and so I thought the best way for me to learn about what a missionary does is to go with the missionaries, right? Like to be with them. And so I, I taught with them weekly. Hmm. And I felt like I knew what to expect. Like yeah. I, I was going into this knowing, okay, I know about tracting. I know about the discussions. And so that was my preparation. And so when I got to 20 and had enough money in my bank account, I turned in my papers and I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and by the way, I decided after working for this company, Zilog, in, in manufacturing computer chips, that I wanted to study chemical engineering. That was you know, I felt like that was fascinating. And this degree would help me with this experience that I had. And I loved the job and it was, I learned a lot. And so that was my plan. You know, I was like rock solid. Okay. Chemical engineering, the Lord put me here so that I could, <laughs> I could figure this out. Yeah. And then, and of course, you know, I'm a forensic accountant. Uh -huh. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. there's a big change. Yeah. Coming. I'm guessing that. So when I was in Oklahoma, um, a few things happened that are very, very interesting. Um, my mission president, he was new, and he called me to take care of the finances. And I'd only been on the mission about six months or so. Hmm. And I loved the area that I was in, in Arkansas. And, uh, and he told me, come over to Tulsa and take care of the finances for the mission. And of course, I didn't know anything about finance. But he I just said, saw you as you're a sharp kid and yeah, maybe you could figure this he out. He was inspired because we know how it turns out. Yeah. But but now, uh, now, what years are are you in Oklahoma? So ninety four to ninety six. Okay. So he called me to take care of the finances. I said I'll do my best, but I, all I know is that a, a credit looks good on my bank statement. That's that's the the knowledge of my account, <laughs> stay in the black my yeah. accounting. So in getting in there, I discovered that missionaries had been stealing from the mission for a long time. Oh my time. goodness. And it was really sad. Yeah. And it was, and I can maybe give you a little flair. The way it was discovered is we all got allotments, right? You know, your monthly allotment. Yeah. At that time, it was very new, but we had debit cards. They were basically brand new. The church would deposit the money on. Actually, I was in charge as the finance person of depositing the money onto each missionary's card. Hmm. It's like 130 bucks a month or something. Well, the office elders also had a gas card. Okay. Now, keep in mind at this time you could keep whatever you had in your account at the end of your mission. Now, they later they changed mm. it. So you're incentivized to So I, I knew missionaries <laughs> that were living on ramen noodles because they thought that they could get a thousand bucks by the end of their mission, which at that time was quite a yeah, bit of money. Put, put a down payment on a car or something, yeah, right? <laughs> and so they were they were just scraping by, you know, to, to try and, you know, save as much as they could. Well, these office elders were also getting their allotment, but they had a gas card. And I noticed that these receipts that were coming in or the, the charges that were coming in on the credit card that I had to pay, this Texaco card, were like 40 and 50 bucks for each charge. And I thought, well, that's odd because at that time gas was a buck a gallon. So they weren't putting in $40 worth of gas. Mm -hmm. And so I called Texaco and said, hey, I want the receipts. I want to know what, it, what these charges are for. And what I found was is that they were buying their groceries. <laughs> 
on the mission gas card. <laughs> from the gas station. From the gas station. And just say, oh, I'll just put it all, you know, one, yeah. one charge, right? And so the, effectively, they were then saving their allotment, which yeah. I knew was for your food, right? right? And I knew that wasn't right, especially if you're saving your allotment. If you're, oh, give, if you're giving it back at the end, okay, it's going to be maybe a wash. Yeah. But I also thought, you know, this is not a good use of the Lord's money because food at a gas station is expensive. Right. If you're buying milk and bread there versus the grocery store, you're paying too much is what yeah. how I felt. And so I told the mission president, I said, this is what's happening. He said, this is wrong. You need to put a stop to that. So I told him, <laughs> well, then I started scrutinizing the mission credit card. Different from the gas cards, you know, we would get a Texaco statement, but we also got a, a visa statement. And previous to this, the mission president, he would just sign the check to pay the credit card. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't look at any backup, and probably they didn't even give him the supporting documents. Yeah. He would just sign the you check. you got a lot to do. Here's sign this, sign that. And so in looking through the past statements, what I discovered is, is they were buying things like newspaper subscriptions, and they were buying, you know, they were paying for speeding tickets. And, and these they, are just uh, elders in the field, not in the office? Uh, in the office. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they were buying clothes with the mission credit card and all this stuff, and I thought, this is wrong. This is not the way that, you know. Yeah. And and plus, why do, why do these guys need newspaper subscriptions? Right? You're on your mission. What do you need? A, <laughs> exactly. You know, magazines and newspapers. Well, and it got worse. They they had another thing. One of the office elders had a family member in Salt Lake that supplied bikes or that had a bike dealership. And, and at that time, the mission would buy the bikes. And then when you got out there, you were to buy a bike from the mission and you know basically reimburse the mission. Well, one of the first things I noticed was there was a lot of elders that took out loans when they first got there. They didn't have enough money to pay the 300 bucks for the, you know, the bike. And so the, the mission was supposed to be deducting a little tiny bit out of their allotment to repay. Well, they had no records of who owed what and how much was left and how, you know, and I thought this is craziness. You know, I'm not an accountant, but Mm -hmm. how do you know when somebody's paid off their bike or what if they don't pay it off? You know, well, in all that process, I discovered that they were buying always a few extra bikes each month, <laughs> and they were selling them in the local market through these ads that they had in the newspapers. So they'd buy like 15 bikes, but only they only needed 13 for that month or whatever. And okay, so, so the office elders, whoever was in the office ordering, uh, we have 13 elders coming in, or we need... 13 bikes, they would but let's get 15. Extra. So the mission uh-huh. would buy them, and then they would sell them basically 100% profit. They right? just sell them there locally, like right. in the newspaper yeah, or whatever? in the newspaper. And then pocket the cash. Huh? Correct, yeah. And so there was a whole bunch of these kind of schemes in it. So I spent five months. During the, during the day, as an office elder, you got your administrative function. And on top of that, I had the investigation. Yeah. And then I would go proselyting in the evening. And I'll tell you, it's interesting that the Lord really magnified that small amount of proselyting because mm-hmm. we had we had multiple baptisms just mm-hmm. with that few hours that we had. So um, after five months, the mission president said, "Enough, you know. I know you could keep investigating. And, you know, it's actually one of my probably fir- keep finding stuff. First investigate, first lessons as an investigator is that there's always going to have to be a limit. You know, you can't just go forever. Yeah." Uh, and so he told me, nope, that's enough, stop. And so... And I'm sure at that point there were some things put in place, some guardrails as far as these processes and things that you helped... Well, my understanding is after this, the church said, okay, we're only calling senior couples to handle uh, the finances for the missions. And I think that was a change yeah, that, that happened sense. 
I don't know if it was exactly related to this, but it came out right after. So, you know, maybe they had other examples and they just... Yeah, I'm sure you weren't the only mission that right. had some shadiness happening. Right? So, yeah. um, the interesting thing for me is, is that the people originally had asked me to cover up when I confronted them, the missionaries. And oh, these wow. are These are guys I was living in the same house with. Uh-oh. You know, they wanted me to basically join them because they had done the same thing for the ones before them. You know, that this is kind of a perk of being in the office. You get all this stuff. And I'm, <laughs> oh, like, I'm like, no, you, you guys, this is my mission, and I'm not going to jeopardize it by any kind of cover-up or scheme. Yeah. And so it was hard because I was investigating, you know, my friends. Um, but ultimately, they all hugged me and thanked me. Hmm. for helping them kind of straighten it out and come clean. And and, and yeah. multiple had to go home early. I don't know exactly what happened beyond that. Yeah. I know one of them was able to go to a different mission and finish his mission. But hmm. uh, And I'm sure it's set up because you get off a mission with some of these habits. There's plenty of opportunity, as you know, in the, in the w- real world to do these types of things. Correct, yeah. yeah. And so I learned a lesson that, you know, confession is part of investigations, but it's a healing effect. And it's actually related to the gospel, right? We mm-hmm. we believe in confession. And, and ultimately, it's how you become true to yourself, right? When you're able to confess, you're finally able to be true, and there's a weight lifted off. And I experienced that with all of these guys. And all this, since then, I've, I've come to validate that confession is is a necessary part, and, it, and it's a healing aspect. Yeah. Um, but but from this experience, I learned that I was supposed to be an investigator, and mm. I immediately changed my plans. I enrolled at BYU, got accepted, and decided at that point in my mission to go study accounting. Hmm. And and you knew that forensic accounting was a thing. That was so the direction you wanted. Or? I wanted to go into accounting because there wasn't such a thing as forensic accounting back then. Oh, there really? there okay. is now. But I knew that accounting would be the best way to get to, you know, to become a fraud investigator, right? Oh, I like see. I wanted to understand finance and accounting. And I knew that BYU had a really tremendous accounting program. So uh, that's, and the guy that there was another office elder that I was with, not involved in any of this, he was studying accounting at BYU. And so he was very influential in that decision to do that as well. I mean, like talking with him, he's like, why don't you come to BYU and study accounting? And so he was a year ahead of me, but we hmm. both studied accounting together. Nice. After that experience, mission president said, okay, you've earned the right to go wherever <laughs> you want to go. You just name the place and I'll send you. And you had maybe about a year left on your mission, I guess, or? Um, I had, yeah, about a year left. Okay. Uh, yeah, about a year left. And so... I said, well, I want to go back to Fayetteville, Arkansas. Now, by the way, Fayetteville, Arkansas, the stake president was President Bednar. Oh, wow. Elder Bednar was my stake president. He was the stake president Bednar at the time. Yeah, and Mm. so I I loved his stake. I loved meeting with him. He'd always have the missionaries over to his house with Susan and his children. And so I had a lot of success there, a lot of baptisms, a lot of great families. Mm. So I said, that's where I want to go. You told me I'm going there. And right before I was to go there, he says, nope, 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 sorry, you're going to the furthest place <laughs> oh, no. in the mission, a military base in the middle of Missouri, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Now, I'll tell you something very interesting. There was an elder, in, in the, the fleet coordinator, in the office, and 
he was very peculiar. Drink a drink a two liter Gatorade, uh, two two liter um, uh, Mountain Dew for breakfast. <laughs> and uh, but but we lived in the same house, and he was always praying for his wife. Huh. And I asked him, I says, "Why are you praying for you? Do you even know her?" And he says, "No, but I'm not going to marry." someone 20 years younger than me, so she's out there somewhere, <laughs> Yeah, right? And, and it really opened my eyes to think, well, that's true. My wife is out there too, my future wife. I can pray for her. I don't know where she is or what her name is or what she's doing, but I can pray that she has a good day, right? So I started to do that. I started to pray for my wife. And then my mission president, he calls me to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I get out there, and then he says, okay, I'm sending you two sisters, two sister missionaries. You need to look after them because you're way out there. I mean, literally closer to St. Louis than we were to Tulsa, uh-huh. you know, and, and so like six hour drive from the mission office. And so he sent me these two sisters, uh, Sister Johnson and one other sister. And of course, we're out there. And then this, the, the, the other sister, and I don't remember her name, it's not important, but but she was having a lot of mental problems, and she needed to go home and like immediately. So she got sent home after just being there just a couple weeks. And so this other sister, Sister Johnson, she's out there by herself with no companion. They didn't send a companion out. They they didn't have one, and so that she had to she had to be a companion with members of the Relief Society in, oh, this, wow. in this little branch. <laughs> and so the mission president had me check on her every day you know, to make sure she was okay and safe. And and so during that time, and we would go teach together while before the other one left, um, I started to be super comfortable around this Sister Johnson. I mean, like super comfortable. And I started thinking, like, I really enjoy, like I was thinking, when can we be together? You know, when can we teach together? And I thought, okay, this is odd because now I'm 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 becoming too close to this uh-huh. this sister. You see some red red flags going up. Or, yeah, red yeah. flags were going up because I didn't want to lose focus on what I was supposed to do. Yeah, and and I found myself trying to figure out ways in which I could be with her and uh-huh. talk talk to her, you know. And so I fasted for two days and prayed that Heavenly Father would let these feelings go away for me, so I could focus on my work. Well, during that time, I got the most powerful spiritual experience, probably one of the most, if not the most, in my life, that I would marry her someday. Oh, wow. And that was shocking, because that, oh, that was not what I was praying for. Did not for. help your, your situation no, in the moment. No, that was yeah. not what I was praying for. And then I, <laughs> then I thought, okay, well, if that's true, and I felt with all my heart that it was, like, how do I even bring this up? Like, how do I even talk to her about this, yes. right? Like... And so I thought about it, and I thought about it, and then I thought, well, I'm going to ask her a simple question, you know. And I knew at that time she was from Idaho Falls, so clear across the other side of the state, like five, four or five hours from Boise, right? I decided to ask her a simple question. She was going to Rick's at that time, too, or, you know, before her mission. I asked her a question. I said, Sister Johnson, and by the way, I didn't even know her first name at this point. We, we didn't. Yeah, call people by their first name. Yeah, very typical. I I didn't even know her first name. And so I I asked her a question. I said, will I ever see you in the temple? And obviously, if you're going to get married to somebody, you would have to be in the temple together, right? Uh Uh But if if she doesn't have any inkling or feelings, she's going to say, well, I don't know, you know, probably not, right? What are the chances that you would meet a 
former missionary in the temple, you know, probably next to nothing. So, but she said, she looked me in the eye and she said, yes, I will see you in the temple. And at that point, I knew that she knew. And I, She was on board. And I asked her, I said, when did you find out? And she said that she knew within the very first few days of meeting me hmm. that we would get married in the temple. So the, how much more of your mission do you have at this point? So um, I had about a year. And so, um, so it was very awkward at that point, less just to say the least. Because yeah, right? you still want to be upstanding missionaries. And, Correct. You know, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so we talked a little bit, and then I said, "Okay, I, I've got to talk to the mission president. I, I got, you know, I need to know what I'm supposed to do here because this is awkward." So I called the mission president. I was expecting him to just get so mad at me and be, yeah. be angry. Emergency transfers, right? <laughs> well, that just that that what have I been doing? You know, I'm I'm basically going out there to date this girl or hang out with her, and that was not what I was trying yeah. to do. Yeah. So I was expecting him to be angry, but he basically came to me and he said, "You know, hey, the elder, this happens. You know, sometimes you you get out there and you have a spiritual experience." You wanted to go to Fayetteville, but I knew strongly that you were supposed to be at this military base, right? So this is the second time this man had very, very important impressions for me. So he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to finish my mission, but I want to be on the opposite side of the mission of her, and I don't want to have any contact, zero, nothing. And so he said, I'm going to make that happen. And so from that point forward, the rest of my mission, I was on the other side of the mission, Hmm. and I never saw her. I didn't write to her. I didn't call her. I mean, I thought about her, of course, but I didn't, you know, matter of fact, the only thing I did is I started writing her parents. Oh, really? And her parents were really freaked out about why this elder is suddenly writing every every month. <laughs> you didn't give them any context or anything? Or? No, I didn't I didn't tell them that, but, but I, I, I thought that she would, that she would tell them. And ultimately, they, they didn't write me until the end, so I didn't know what they were thinking. But But you just kept writing them? But I kept writing them, huh. and you were just, you know, this is my, this is my name. This, is, I'm in the mission, yeah. and you just talk missionary work, right, and right, yeah, wow. And I, but I thought that the, she would have written and told them, but she wasn't on good terms with her father, not even speaking terms. But interesting thing about her is, is she was initially called to London, England, hmm. and she got her call, and then before she could actually go, and she, so we got our call at the same time in February 1994. And of course, the sisters only served for 18 months. So we got our call at the same time. Mine, Tulsa, hers, London. Of course, I didn't know this at the time, but before she could go to the MTC, she had a seizure. And so they told her, oh, okay, let's hold off on your application. We want you to wait six months, roughly, and reapply. So she waited six months, reapplied, and she was called to Tulsa, Oklahoma, Hmm. which is where, of course, where I met her. And because she had to wait six months, we both were basically done at the same time. And in order to avoid being in the mission home together and going home together, she actually stayed one extra transfer. Hmm. So I came home a month before her. uh, And then she... What happened, Cody? I'm on the end. (laughs) And then... uh, So she was done at Rexburg. She had Uh done two years. So she transferred to BYU. I went to BYU. And we were married five months later. I mean, five months after coming home. Oh, wow. From, so it was very quick. Very quick. So you were both still on the same page and 
and uh, yep. it happened. Yep. Okay. So, so we started the date almost immediately. As soon as she got home, I drove over to Idaho Falls and met her parents. And, and uh, they go, the, the kid who keeps writing right. us. Right. Huh? And, nice. uh, and then we went to BYU and dated and, and like I said, got nice. married. Where'd you get married? In the Idaho Falls Temple. Nice. That's where I got married. Okay. With my wife. So. Yeah. And so out of that marriage came three beautiful children, mm-hmm. two boys or two girls and a boy. So girl, boy, girl. And you're you're going through college. You get your undergrad in accounting. So I got my master's and my bachelor's at in, BYU. In, at BYU, which is a stellar accounting program, right? Yep. And then my friend, who I was telling you about, uh, Nathan Baker, he decided to go work for Arthur Anderson in Washington D.C. Hmm. And he That's was pretty a, typical for a, a accounting guy. Yeah, right? and he hmm. was a year ahead of me. And so they came and they recruited and they said, okay, well, if you want to work for Arthur Anderson, great, you know, and I did because they were the most prestigious of all the big big accounting firms. They said, we only do fraud in Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and New York City. And my wife and I at the time looked at that and said, well, Chicago's too cold, New York's too big, Los Angeles is too expensive. Okay, let's try D.C. And I was lucky because my friend had already started working for them in D.C., just in, in their audit group. And so we followed him out there. I did an internship, and then we came out there. By that time, I had two children. So it was my, my daughter, Young Sarah, family. Mm-hmm. and my son, Matthew. And we moved out there. My youngest daughter, Aubrey, was born out there in 2003. So we got out there and uh, and started my career, started yeah. my forensic accounting. And I've been doing that now for 20, 24 years, wow. you know, not counting the mission and some stuff that I did in college, but professionally 24 years. Wow. And, uh, and I'll I'll tell you one other quick story. Um, this was when we first moved there, I was making like 45,000 a year. Now, Fairfax County, Virginia is one of the most expensive counties in the United States. I Hmm. mean, it is just really expensive there. And my wife had decided she wasn't going to work. She wanted to raise the children and stay home, be a mother. And I was fine with that. And we had to make a lot of sacrifices to make that work there. We had an apartment. My daughter was three at the time, and she wanted a dog. <laughs> and the apartment had a no dog rule. And I said, "Well, you know what? What can we do? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you have the greatest cop out. Just hey, what do you expect me to do? Right? Yeah, that's and, the, and this, the rules. This was an ongoing request, right? I want mm-hmm. a dog. And so it's a little. There's a little bit more. Pres- I had read a talk as a missionary. And this was a talk, that, or a, a, a story from Elder, or from President Monson, who was Elder Monson at the time. He went to Samoa as a brand new general authority in the 1960s, and he met some primary children, and he decided impromptu that he would have a conference with just the primary children. Hmm. And he was there, and he had a very tight schedule because this was all impromptu, and it was actually in a totally different village from where he was, right? Like he was on one side of the island, and he felt prompted to go to the other side and have this impromptu primary conference. Well, while he was there, and, and by the way, I, was, I heard this story as a missionary, so it was familiar with me, but while he was there, he, he closed the meeting, and he felt very strongly that he should shake each of their hands, and he initially discarded it during this prayer because he just didn't feel like he had enough time. And then it came more powerful. And he was like, uh. And then finally, it came so powerful that he said, okay, I don't care if I miss my flight or my boat. I'm going to shake all their hands because that's what the Spirit's telling me. So he told the leader what he wanted to do. And the leader basically said, 
you know, started crying, and President or Elder Monson was surprised by his, you know, reaction, his emotional reaction, and and, and the guy turned to him. And, and all the children were weeping and crying when the guy told him what Elder Monson was going to do. But Elder, the, the, the person conducting said, Elder Monson, when we heard that an apostle was coming to our island, we told the children that if you pray with all your heart, this elder, this apostle will come to our village and will shake each one of your hands. Oh, wow. That's powerful. And so President Monson was fulfilling that promise. And I, I reflected upon that, you know, the faith of not only the leaders, but the children, right? And, and, and honestly, I'd heard the story, and I really, really wanted to know the source, right? I wanted to make sure that I, I, I quoted it correctly, that it wasn't embellished or that it wasn't and, and but I never could find it in writing. And of course, they you know the internet wasn't that yeah. developed enough to where you could Google search things. And, and so you read this story in a conference talk, or no? I I heard it as a missionary. Oh, Some, I see. Somebody had told me. Okay, so you didn't know if it was a real story, right? Okay. And okay. so at this time that my daughter is asking me, you know, for a dog, and I'm trying to I don't know how how this is going to happen. I don't have enough. We don't have enough money. To, to get a house, you know. And so we had, during this time, we had a regional conference. And at that time, it was President Monson. Hmm. He came out and he spoke and he told that story. Oh, wow. So I heard it directly from him, which was amazing, right? Like, you know, I wanted to find it in writing, but I heard it in person. Yeah, from the source. And, yeah. and so, it, again, it reflected and impressed me. And one day my daughter came to me again and says, I want a dog. And so I felt impressed to promise her. I said, Sarah, if you pray with all your heart that, that we can get a house, then we'll get you a dog. And, and then, I, I, you know, I believed the promise. But to be honest, I was scared because I'm like, <laughs> she's, she's now praying. Yeah. She has faith. The faith of a child. That's strong. She yeah. has faith. But I don't know how this is going to work out. So shortly after that, my wife ran into a lady at a bank, and this lady told her about this low-income housing that the county has, where the county basically buys, you know, is developing land, and they take a few of the units from the developer, and the developer gives those to the county, and the county then sells those units at the cost of the builder. Hmm. So with no markup, no profit, nothing, but just literally the cost of building it. And so they have the, this program, and basically you apply. If you make enough money or not enough money or under a certain threshold, you can yeah. apply. So we qualified, and we applied, and they says, okay, now just to be realistic, you got to be on this list for years and years before you finally win the lottery, effectively. Yeah, yeah. It's like a drawing. <laughs> yeah. A few people and then hundreds and maybe even thousands would apply. And so we, we applied for a, a brand new townhouse that was being built not far from the church, not far from our apartment. And I remember on the day of the drawing, my daughter was praying, you know, and we won on the very first time. Wow. So within nine months of making that promise, we had a house, you know, which was, I, I wouldn't even have believed that it was possible on our salary to have our own house 
you know, in this county, you know, making $45,000 a year, which is crazy. But it was, it was just a really powerful spiritual experience. And you got the dog, right? Well, uh, I've told this <laughs> okay. story and everybody asked the question. So when my mother-in-law came to help us move in, she brought a bunch of kittens Oh, okay. on a one-way ticket. So we had the, t- the kittens uh, for a long time. And then eventually when, when they were gone, they, she got a dog. Oh, okay. But not. But the kittens were suffice for yeah, her for, desire for, for a pet. For a four-year-old, that was, that was good enough, <laughs> you know, to have some kittens. So <laughs> nice. she, she was just happy. So anyway, so that That's was. That's great. That's great. And then, um. You know, and so this, this, I tell you the story. I'm not married to Chantel Johnson. Yeah, you're anymore. in your second marriage currently. So um, I'm sure there's a story there. Yeah. And so ultimately, you know, there were some challenges. I traveled a lot for my mission. Mm-hmm. And actually, we went for your job. For, for my job, sorry. Yeah. And we li- actually lived in Kuwait actually for two years. I, well, I, I did. My family joined me for part of the second year. Uh, and then, and that project ended, so they, they, we went back, but the travel was really hard on our marriage, really Mm -hmm. hard. And it was hard because my wife was just very, very good at organizing things and just really focused on raising the children. And and you know, she's a great mother, but she didn't really have a place for me. And I felt out of place when Mm -hmm. I would come home. Because she was maybe more used to you being gone than home. More right? used to me being gone than home, and so it just created a lot of problems. And and, I, and of course, I made a lot of mistakes. Sure. I was a young person and and had a lot of things that I just didn't do right. Mm-hmm. And and that just created a lot of conflict in our marriage. And ultimately, I was willing to you know just do whatever it took to resolve it. And I went to my bishop. And we went to counseling, and it just wasn't getting better. I went to my bishop expecting him to tell me to stick it out. Hmm. And he says, look, Cody, the purpose of this life is to be happy, and you're not happy, and your wife is not happy. So my counsel to you is to get a divorce. Oh, wow. And I was surprised by that. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, I got a, you know, married in the temple. This is for eternity, and it's going to be hard, and I felt like it was going to be hard, but I'm like, I'm signed up for it, you know? Um, Whatever it takes. And so that counsel was hard, but I didn't follow it. I, I still felt... Yeah, you just hanging on hope, I would imagine, as we all would. Hanging on hope. But yeah. eventually, she just decided that, that she didn't want to be married, yeah. and it was better to part. So she hired an attorney and, and filed for divorce. And at yeah. that point, I couldn't... There was nothing I could do, but... but yeah. As you're going through that, what... I mean, what comes to mind as far as like getting through the, just the really... The hard days. I mean, maybe every day felt hard, but I'm sure some were harder than others, right? What comes to mind as far as just, because I'm sure there's many others that will experience that. Um, you know, nobody gets married expecting to get divorced. And Correct. so, uh, I mean, you just want to, you want to wheel it into, into success, right? Yeah. But how, how did you handle those hard, really hard times? Well, I tell you, it was hard because, um, because for me, of course, I understand the concept that to be in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you have to be married in the temple, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have an eternal marriage. And I didn't want to shoot for something less than that. Like, I don't want the, to be... To, to, to. And so that was hard. And I'll tell you, um, you know, being separated wasn't super hard. Mm-hmm. But the day the divorce was final, which was... Ironically, it was on February 14th. That's when the judge, the judge signed it on, Happy ba- Valentine's, on Day, Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when that happened, I felt a loss of the temple 
covenant blessings. Hmm. Like I could feel like a tangible loss, like I was now outside of that. And, and it wasn't canceled from the church's perspective, right. but I just felt that loss that I'm no longer within the confines and the protection of the eternal marriage covenant. Yeah. And so that was that was very strange to feel yeah. that, and and from that point forward, I just yearned to have that back. Yeah. I mean, what, I, what year was that divorce final? Two thousand and twelve. So okay. we were separated in two thousand eleven. Um, so the marriage was 13, 14 years, or how, how long? It was fourteen years. Yeah, okay. yeah, fourteen years. Um, and so, uh, so that was difficult, and this, this was also difficult on my two daughters. They they struggled with this divorce big time. My son, he kind of just, you know, he was, you know, kind of easygoing, mm. but for them it was difficult, and it still impacted my relationship with them to this day, mm. which is which has been sad for me um, because I love them dearly. But um, 2012, and so um, so I started to go as soon as the divorce was final. I started to go to a mid singles ward because I wanted to, you know, surround myself yeah. with potential opportunities to find a new spouse and move forward. And and keep in mind, I had experienced divorce as a child. You know, child. Yeah. My parents got yeah. divorced, and and so I was familiar with divorce and and these kind of um, situations. And I, I decided that I didn't want to fight my ex wife. At that point, you know, I, I just basically wanted to agree to whatever demands there were because I didn't want to spend all my money on attorneys. Hmm. I figured even if I give it to her, it's going to benefit my children, right? And it's better to give it to someone that I cared for and my children than, you know, some stranger. So, um, so I started going to the mid-singles ward, got super active and just had a tremendously great time. I mean, just loved serving in, in working in the mid-singles ward, organizing activities, you know, getting people together. There's a number of marriages that came out of that, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in that process, I met a woman named Rebecca Estrada, mm -hmm. who's not my wife. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, so we fell in love We're at dating. She was in the church, out of the church, and she was just barely coming back. She had these promptings to come back. She had a nine-year-old son. And he, as he get, got to eight, she thought, I got to put him in the gospel. Now, she'd been divorced since he was like little. So she'd been mm -hmm. raising him by herself. She came back to the church, joined the mid-singles ward. We met, got married in the St. George Temple. And I was so happy, so happy. I, and I loved And what year was that? So that was 2015. Okay. 2015. So you've been single for three years or so? Three years, yeah. Um, officially, you know, unofficially longer, because we in Virginia you have to be separated a year before you can get divorced. Oh, okay. So I had been separate, single for a little bit longer. And you were, you were living in Virginia when you went to the mid-singles ward and Correct, like that. Correct, yeah. Okay. And, and that way I could visit my children, you know, on the weekends and, and be with them. And so... Uh, it was wonderful. Rebecca's an amazing person, amazing family. I love her family. Um, lived in Virginia. Eventually, I, I my job was kind of coming to an end. You know, they they had overhired partners, and they basically said we we're not going to hire any partners for this office. So you're either going to have to move, or you're going to have to find another job. And they didn't give me a timeline, but they basically said within a couple years you're going to have to leave mm -hmm. the firm. And so. 
that was disappointing because I, I, I wanted to stay there and continue to work. But ultimately, I took a job with Johnson Controls in Milwaukee. And this was a hard decision because my wife loved, Rebecca loved Virgi Virginia. That's where Max had grown up his whole life. Um, but, you know, ultimately it was good for us because the cost of living was far less. Traffic was far less. And even though my salary was less, it kind of went further. Yeah. And so ultimately she signed up to go. And she wasn't thrilled about it, but, you know, it was a great opportunity. Now she's, she still lives there and she is loves Wisconsin. Oh, really? okay. She is, oh, she's so happy there. Um, so we moved out there. And, and by the way, in Virginia, she was just starting to get into the church, like back in and she got a calling and she was, her testimony was growing and moving to Wisconsin kind of set her back. You know, she's like, oh, I don't want to start over. And so she was a little bit reluctant to get going into the mm. church again. And I was uh, concerned, of course, about her testimony and her growth. And so she started to get going, you know, and get right back in and, you know, getting kind of accustomed. And then COVID hit. And, of course, we know that COVID, the beginning of COVID, there was no church. Yeah. And it was a little bit later, they started doing the Zoom sacrament, but for a while, it was just do it at your home. Yeah. And uh, and and by the way, she had started to get feelings, um, anti-Mormon feelings. Mm. Uh, I, I started noticing them because she was against the church's position on gays, and she had a, a brother that was gay, and her parents struggled with that at first. And she really was angry at her parents for how they treated her brother hmm. when he said that he was gay. And he was a missionary, came home be and, and became gay. And she had some other friends, and so this this began to bother her about how the church was was working about, you know, or dealing with gays in the church. And also, uh, you know, she had a lot of strong feelings about how women were treated, you know, hmm. and, and you know, all male priesthood and things like this. And so I, I began to struggle with this, like, how do I help her? How do I do this? And then COVID hit. And mm. then she told me, she says, I'm not, I'm not ever coming back. You, you, when church resumes, you can go back, but I'm not going back. I don't believe in it. Matter of fact, I think it's wrong. I think it's a cult and, you know, lots, lots mm. of stuff. And so that was devastating for me, you know, because here I am, second temple marriage. We got married in the St. George yeah. Temple. And I'm like, well, okay, part two, I got to stick it out. Maybe, you know, it's just a phase and she'll come back, you know, and, and, so, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't want to get too personal with her because I sure. still, still have, you know, still respect her, let's say it that way. Um, but she had a lot of mental challenges and she was locked up in, a, in an institution for like almost a month mm. because of suicidal feelings and just like they were super concerned with how she would, you know, uh, how she could hurt herself. And, and it took me a lot of effort to get her out of there. I mean, they wanted to keep her in there for a long time. So I got her out of there and I thought Milwaukee, Wisconsin would fresh air, change of pace would kind of help with that. But it, she struggled with that. But uh, ultimately, she started drinking and she started doing other things that were incompatible with the church and with the way I wanted mm. to live. And it was just really difficult to, to maintain that family, and, and I just struggled. And ultimately, she came to me one day, and she said, I don't want to hold you back. I don't want to ever be part of the church, and, and I know you do, and so this is just not going to work. And so she then asked for a divorce. Mm. 
Wow. And so this was devastating, right? Yeah. Here I am just trying to put things together. I've got the stepson who's now 18, 17 at that time. And and I just loved him to death. And I was worried like, oh, okay, how's this going to impact you know with him? And so uh, anyway, so got divorced. And and that was like I'm back to square one. I, wow. I, I don't know what's happening now. You know, it's there's something wrong with me, perhaps. Mm. You know, and so I just was just struggling with that again. You know, it was like and and I was the state clerk, and I had the state president and bishops just loving me. You know, supporting me, helping me, encouraging me. And um, so then I'm like, wow, this is tough. You know, and at that point I was working from home as well. Mm-hmm. All three of my children were at BYU, and they were all doing phenomenal and, you know, all on scholarships, studying hard degrees, doing great. And I thought, well, here's my chance. I just can move out to Provo or out to Utah, be close to them, support them, and who knows, maybe I'll find somebody and, you know, a third time is a charm, right? Or, or, or maybe it's thir- third strike and you're out. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So um, eventually, um, on the de- the decision to move out here, my company agreed that they didn't care. And so um, I was thinking that down the road, something might happen. Well, I got on the mutual just to see. The mutual app, right? The mutual app, just uh-huh. to see who are the, the single sisters that are out here in their, you know, in their late 30s, or early 40s, right? And uh, I didn't reach out to Marie, but Marie found me. And she said, I never really looked at anybody outside Utah. I just didn't do it. And and she was only casually looking, but she felt prompted to look at somebody outside. She found me. She, she sent me a message. Because you were in Wisconsin at this time. In Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. So we started talking and then, uh, you know, we, we just kind of did it through, through messages, but I came out to visit her, uh, for the first time in the summer of 2021. Hmm. And then, uh, and then, uh, I was moving out here to be with my family anyways. And so I kind of split my time. I had a house out there that I needed to sell, but, uh, but eventually we got married in the summer of 2022 in the, uh, Jordan river temple. Oh, nice. Uh, and her dad is a temple, is a sealer in that temple. And so that's why we did it there. Out. So he could, he could seal us. So I've had a crazy journey as yeah. a child and then as an adult trying to navigate through marriage yeah. and families, and it's by no means ideal, by no means perfect. <laughs> you don't recommend your path, but that's the path that no, you went down. No, no. And, and I'm <laughs> so happy to be married to Marie. She's yeah. an amazing person, a strong testimony. And, and did she have a former marriage as well? Did she bring any kids into the marriage? Former marriage, two uh-huh. children. So oh, great. She, my oldest daughter, Sarah, her oldest daughter, Sarah. Oh, nice. And so, And then she has a son, Ryan, who still lives with us. Her daughter, Sarah, is the same age as my youngest daughter, Aubrey. They're within a few months of each other. And they both, uh, my daughter just finished, this month, finished a mission in Scottsdale, Arizona. And her daughter, Sarah, is a missionary in Salem, Oregon, finishing in March. Oh, that's great. So a couple more months for her. And so between us, we have five children. And then her daughter, Sarah, has got a boyfriend in, in, well, I say boyfriend. They were boyfriend before, but he's a missionary in, in Korea, and he's probably going to be our son-in-law. We've we've yeah. known that for a long time. <laughs> so we have him. My oldest daughter's married, no children. So I have a son-in-law, Nate, and then we've kind of adopted three along the way. 
uh, and I still consider my ex stepson now Max. I still consider him my yeah. son, and so and he's in Wisconsin. Or? He's in Wisconsin, okay. going to college there, and uh, and so all told, we we claim ten as oh, our nice. as our children. You know, well, that's great, which is kind of fun. And so I, I came from a weird mixed up group of children. And now I have a, a kind of this strange mixed up group of children yeah. as well. But but you recognize the tender mercies in it all, and right. and you're grateful for it. And, yeah, and Heavenly upward Father, and onward, right? Heavenly Father is amazing. Nice. Uh, and so I tell that story because I, I I really don't tell very many people at all that I've been married three times in the temple. Mm. You know, that's, yeah. There's some, and how have you sort of navigated just the the stigma that comes with that, or that though people may not say look down on you or say something, but maybe there's that feeling, right? Yeah, I, you know, I I don't talk about it unless somebody directly asks me, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's there's a part of me that's it's just, it's an internal battle because one, it's my history, it's who, it's what yeah. happened. I can't yeah. I can't change it now. It's it's there. But there's also a part of me that's not exactly proud of that, right? Like mm-hmm. I always thought I want to be married for 50 years to the same person yeah. and have all these grandchildren and, you yeah. know, just be, you know, this ideal family. And it didn't work out that way. And 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 a lot of it's my own fault. And so in some ways I'm ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it, and, I, and I admire Marie because she can talk freely about it. But still for me, I'm, a, I'm more of a private person. Mm-hmm. And so talking about it is is difficult, you know. And I and, and I recognize that if I could overcome that, I could probably help people. You know, I could probably let people learn from my experience. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm I'm trying to get there. I'm trying yeah. to learn to to talk about it freely. Yeah. Uh, and and there are some some bad things on the other side, and I don't want to highlight those things. I don't want to disparage. Yeah. You know, my ex-wife. Rebecca or Chantel, and so I try to navigate that too because um, you know I, I don't want to have bad feelings. Yeah, and, and my dad had resentment, and I don't didn't want to go that direction. Hmm. So yeah, it's almost like it, you know with the in, with hindsight and just recognizing what you went through as a child, you can recognize what you don't want, even though the situation isn't what maybe someone would say ideal. Right? right exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. And, Interesting. I, and I have family members that want me. They they encourage me to hate them you know mm-hmm. for what they did and all this and i'm like no yeah. no and i and i feel like i may have contributed to their hate because of i told them the stories right mm. and that made them angry and i'm like wait a second yeah that's not what i want i don't want you to be angry at them because that only impacts you you know and and if if i'm not angry why should you be angry you know you weren't the one married to them you know yeah and so anyway, so I've I've tried to work hard about talking about it in a way that is respectful and and truthful, right? Because right. you know, there's two sides to every story, yeah. you know. So tell me, uh you've been the Elder Scorn president uh not a year now or how how long you've been since there? since the ward formed in April. Okay. I, I so we're initial Elder okay. Scorn president. So tell me about being Elder Scorn president. Is that is that your thing? Have you enjoyed it? Is so it... I I like to be, if I can, like second person. You know? <laughs> like I, I, I don't want to be the decision You're maker. You're the sidekick. Okay. But I, but right. I, I like like the state clerk was awesome. That for was me your because I had yeah. no no actual keys, no authority. Uh-huh. But I got to see everything. I got to see the blessings and the callings and the spiritual experiences. And so for me, like I'm, I'm happy to be a worker bee behind the scenes. I'll work yeah. till two in the morning doing lists or you know, sending emails, whatever. Uncovering fraud in the mission. <laughs> That's right. 
Um, so being elders quorum president was a little bit of a shock because it's like, okay, now sort of the buck stops with you, right? The, yeah. the tone of the elders quorum, everything, you know, revolves whether I'm active or inactive, this is going to set the tone and not only the tone for the quorum, but for the future of this ward, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a brand new ward. Um, so, but fortunately, you know, I have learned in meeting with the elders and meeting with them frequently and, and often, I, I say elders, the brothers of our mm-hmm. ward, um, that this ward has some incredible talent. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're one of them. I mean, there's just some amazing people and their life experiences, their work experiences, yeah. their testimonies. Uh, it's just unbelievable how much talent. And you see it in our testimony meetings. You see it in the people that teach our quorum classes people that give talks i mean i don't know if you, this sunday you know prime I, prime example i wasn't there this past sunday but okay uh, yeah, yeah the, amazing and so that's been a great blessing you know and and cool. i have two great counselors and uh and uh, you know just a quorum that's willing and ready to serve at every turn and that's just made it been a great joy that's to, cool. serve, to serve in this calling so now you're a your day job you're a for, forensic accountant mm-hmm and so you travel, or you work for a specific company looking for fraud in that company. Correct. Financial fraud. Correct. With and, just, with, just within Johnson Controls. And it's okay. 120,000 employees all around the world, so there's plenty of bad actors. And, and what's the main thing that company does? So the main thing they do is HVAC. So they, okay. they actually were one of the founders. They invented the first thermostat oh, back, wow. in, back in the 1880s. <laughs> Holy they, cow. They invented a building thermostat that could regulate the temperature of a building. And you can imagine... You know, in hot, humid climates, regulating the temperature of a building was a big thing. Yeah. And and in Wisconsin in particular, too, in the wintertime, they could get, get the heat turned on when the temperature got, you know, a certain temperature. So you're looking for employees within the company who are doing something shady. Correct. Maybe yeah. they give a bid and they say, hey, I'm going to give you this bid, but you give me 10 grand back. Or if a Tesla shows up in my driveway, so be it, or Correct. type of thing, right? Yep, exactly. Nice. That as well as just... You know, so we do a lot of installations and construction, and so yeah. we have guys that show up at the job site. They'll show up for four hours, but they'll put eight hours on their timesheet. Uh, right? So you get a lot of that, and then you get a lot of conflicts of interest. So guys are working for us, but then they're working for the competitor at the same time, or they, you know, start their own business and they start stealing our parts and tools and using our trucks and mm. things like that. And, and then you get salespeople who are trying to meet their numbers and they make fake contracts or mm. they you know, sign for a customer, you know, and, and just, and then, then the typical expense reports, you know, people are traveling and they make up expenses or, you know, you name it. I mean, we've seen everything you can imagine. Um, and we do, we do about 200 investigations a year just for North America. Wow. Uh, and I have two people that work for me that I hired. So there's three of us. Do a lot of them go to like a legal trial or do people get sent to prison? No. Very few, very few, because a lot of what we deal with is just, you know, okay, so it's misconduct, unethical, we terminate them. Mm. Uh, If it's theft, generally speaking, it just doesn't pay to try to enforce. Yeah, you're going to spend more than what you get, right? More in legal fees. And and quite frankly, a lot of people that steal it, they don't have it, right? They steal it because they got debts or they need to spend it. Yeah, it's not there anymore. And so they don't have it. So you, you can't get it anyways. If it goes above about three or four or five hundred thousand, that's when they'll get an attorney, you know, hire outside counsel or do something, you know, turn it over to local prosecutors. Hmm. 
But fortunately, we don't deal with very many of those. Maybe three or four a year like yeah. that. Yeah, interesting. So, so what's uh, I mean, just I mean, we've heard the conference talks. We've we've been we've been the Boy Scout or whatever, learning these principles. Obviously, you know, just be honest. Whatnot? Any anything else you've learned just seeing the um, the traps of mortality that some people struggle with? They think I'm just I just need a little bit more this month, or just being honest. What, anything yeah. come to mind? Well, you know, it really comes back to President Nelson gave a talk, and he talked in this talk, it was about overcoming the world. Hmm. And this is this is kind of the philosophy of my life, right? Like, like I am, I enjoy travel, I enjoy mountain climbing, but I'm not a material person. I don't, you know, have, and I don't want to speak bad about people that have material things because that's that's sure. their thing. But I think the trap is is that people focus on possessions, right? They yeah. want they want material things. And in order to do that, they have to have wealth. They have to have money. Yeah. And so people get into debt, and then when that doesn't work, some people just resort to cutting corners, being unethical, stealing. And it may, and it may be, be borrowing at first, but there's always that initial justification, right? And I think, you know, Tithing is a great thing because if if you pay your tithing, it really helps you begin to focus on, okay, I could have this vacation, this car, whatever, but I'm going to let that go and I'm going to give the money to the Lord. And the blessing, I think, of tithing is, is it helps you put your priority where it needs to be, which is on things that are really important, not the next car yeah. or the next vacation. And so, you know, learning to not let material things drive you is can be really helpful for allowing you to have time to serve, one, but also to put your focus, you know, on heaven and heavenly things as opposed to worldly things. Yeah, awesome. Um, I think that is uh, my advice on that. And then, you know, as being an investigator, I think that, um, you know, I want to share that when I, when I, in the fraud training, one of the key elements of the, th- the theory of fraud is, is this triangle. And they call it the fraud triangle. And it's likened to fire, right? The fire has to have three elements for it to, to happen. It has to have air, fuel, and heat, right? And if you take away any of those elements, if you have air and fuel, you won't have a fire, mm-hmm. right? If you have heat and fuel and no air, you won't have a fire. In other words, you take away yeah. any of those and this guy, he developed this theory of fraud, which has also has a triangle. And it has you have to have rationalization, you have to have opportunity, pressure. So you have to have pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. And so if you take one of those elements out, you will not have fraud. Hmm. Right? Like if if I have all kinds of pressure, like debt or medical bills, and there's money on the table. That somebody else's. Now I have opportunity and pressure. But if I can't rationalize stealing it, I won't steal it. Hmm. Right? Now if I have rationalization, I I, I I feel like the company owes me this money. I'm, I'm due. And I have all this pressure, but there's no opportunity. It's not out there. I can't find it. I'm not going to steal. And if there's... The last one is if there's, pre- if there's opportunity, the money's there, and I can rationalize it, but I don't have any pressure, right? I don't, I don't need the money. You know, I, I could take it, you owe it to me, but I don't need it. I'm probably not going to steal, right? Yeah. And so that was a very interesting thing to think about, th- those three things, because from a company's perspective, they can control the opportunity, 
and to some extent they can control the pressure, but a company can't control the employee's rationalization, hmm. right? So when you think about it like that, it, become, it becomes an interesting way of helping companies and also in individuals avoid situations where they might commit fraud. Yeah. So, Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Any other, I got one more question for you, but any other story, concept, uh, strange hobby, I don't know, that, that you need to mention before we, we wrap up or do we, do we good, um, do a good job? Well, I guess a hobby, and I would encourage people to consider this. Okay. When, when I was in Virginia with my son and my youngest daughter visiting me, um, you know, I wanted to do something fun on the weekends, right? I wanted to make those those moments memorable and, and just get away from video games or, you know, electronics. And so we went and we visited the highest point of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and uh, Maryland all in the same weekend. Oh, cool. And I later discovered there's a group called the High Pointers Group, which is dedicated to getting to the highest point of each state. And so my son and I, my daughter at first, but now just my son and I developed a goal to get to the highest point of each state. And we've done 40. Oh, my goodness. So, we, so cool. we have 10 left. And by the time he was 18, he had visited all 50 states, which oh, is wow. pretty amazing. That is. Um, but I, the thing that's beautiful about this is that you're spending time together. You're outdoors. You're doing you know, something physical. Many of these places are off the grid. There's, yeah. no, there's no electronics. Even if you wanted, there's no signal in a lot of these places. So you get to see the beautiful country and the journey. And it's just been a very rewarding hobby with, cool. with my son and I. I have great memories of each and every high point. So just nice. something to think about. If there was one point you would recommend over others, which which one would be? What, what peak? Which, which high point? Yeah. Um, they're all amazing in their own right, but I think Maine is one of my oh, most yeah. favorite. And what's it called? Uh, Katahdin, Mount Katahdin. Oh, wow. uh, the actual peak is called Baxter Peak, but oh, it's, nice. it's Mount Katahdin. That's cool. That's and cool. it's the starting point or the ending point, depending upon your perspective, of the Appalachian Trail. Oh, cool. That peak, you yep. Wow. Interesting person, Cody. This is great. All right. I want you to get in your time machine and go 100 years into the future. What would you tell your posterity? Um, what one message? Wow, that's a good one. I guess I would tell them to don't skip your scripture study. I think your scripture study and prayer, I guess, is kind of related, but scripture study is what will, it's, at least for me, is the, is the ultimate foundation of my testimony. And if you have that, then whatever other people do or say can't change your foundation, right? Like your testimony is not in a person, it's in those scriptures. And if you study the scriptures and stay close, then, you know, I think you'll, you'll continue to be on the path that you need to be on. That's what I would tell my posterity. 